This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on this special uh, Black Friday Thanksgiving week edition of the podcast is uh, from right here in our backyard, uh, Peter Bacart of Purpose Brewing, formerly uh, the 21-year alumni brewmaster for New Belgium Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, We're going to get into an interesting conversation covering a whole lot of ground. Obviously, New Belgium has been in the news lately, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, But I'm really interested in focusing on uh, Peter's approach to sour beer making, uh, his thoughts on beer styles, uh, his uh, uh, recent foray and study of the way that wood interacts with beer. We're going to touch on all those kinds of brewing subjects uh, throughout the next hour. But before we get started, first and foremost, uh, if you are not a subscriber to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, go to beerandbrewing.com right now and take advantage of our special, very limited time Black Friday subscription deal for 20% off subscriptions to the magazine. That's beerandbrewing.com. Click on the little subscribe subscribe button. It's a way to support what we do right here at Craft Beer and Brewing. Also, as the uh, brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new G&D Chiller unit. Also... Turn your fridge into the best craft beer around with the Tavor app. Get access to -to hard-to-find, 100% independent craft beer from 47 states. Only buy the beers you want and skip the ones you don't. Ship any amount of your hand-picked beer to your doorstep with one flat fee. Yep, any amount. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. So, Peter, you've had a long and storied career uh, in American craft. Uh, you started at New Belgium Brewing uh, back in the you know, in early days for the brewery, or relatively early days, and watched uh, the entire world of craft beer in the United States uh, grow and develop over that time. Uh, walk me a little bit through, um, you know, th- uh, you know, give me a short uh, Peter Bacart brewing history lesson. Oh, so you want to go me to uh, me to go to Belgium also? Sure, sure. So I studied Bel- in Belgium, uh, brewing engineer, and then I started. Um, I did some internships in different breweries. I um, worked uh, then for ten years in the Rodenbach, where uh, Rodenbach, who's kind of a sour beer producer of um, uh, many, but we were also doing some work for other breweries, and we bought some other breweries. So I was engaged in other breweries. Um, started my own little brewery that was uh, around a five hectolitre system, uh, basically a four barrel system, the Zwingel in Harobik in the same time, uh, or sorry, the last two years. And then in 96, I moved to the US for New Belgium. Uh, that was indeed kind of early craft brewing, especially for Colorado, I think, because uh, English and um, uh, German styles were kind of what was present here. and 
Belgium was the capital of Brussels. Nobody really knew anything about Belgium, and the beer was so heavy in alcohol, or sometimes with fruit, all kinds of weird stuff. Um, so it was kind of, for me, very strange coming over here that um, even when we released La Folie in 99, that people had a problem what the sour beer was. I grew up with sour beers. <laughs> sure, so, sure. <laughs> and for me, it's... Um, it was an interesting moment and look how we evolved uh, so fast now here with um, so many small breweries where purpose is one of uh, them. Um, but the interest in beer has really changed quite a bit and I think we should be proud as American brewers also of what we created for the beer industry, on types of beers, on um, it actually looked upon right now from other countries um, about what we've done in a relatively short time. That is an interesting you know, point, and it's it's something we've talked about before. In the last 20 years, America has grown from brewing up styles of beer that are based in other countries' traditions to developing our own styles of beer, things like hazy IPA or West Coast IPA, um, uh, you know, other others, and becoming the influencer. And now becoming the making styles of beer that uh, you know brewers in other countries also want to try to brew. But we also have influenced the raw material market quite a bit. And I was just judging two weeks ago in Brazil, and and there's so much IPAs as they call IPAs there, um, and and the American hops really have. Uh, America was uh, an alpha provider, was a commodity market for hops, and it has completely changed. In Germany has almost become the alpha provider now where we have so much beautiful American hops. And where did that come from? Really by craft brewers. Um, the, the larger craft brewers have really been pushing on getting more varieties, sometimes too early out, but it's better to get them early out. And if it doesn't perform uh, agriculture-wise, we still uh, were pushing it at least. And there's always failure if you push a little bit too early. Um, but... It's so beautiful what we have created on the hop side. You know, and I, I wonder, though, you know, in a country like Brazil, isn't this, you know, the kind of inspiration that, you know, those brewing cultures will ultimately then turn into um, and start to own for themselves? You know, it is, you know, amazing to see this kind of thing. I Wouldn't the ideal, though, be for a market in Brazil to grow and develop and then be able to support their own agriculture and their own, you know, own flavors and their own, uh, you know, growing of these things. It's been interesting to see that the Catarina Sauer was now the first Brazilian style who's actually in um, the World Brewing Cup um, and came really from the use of fruit that is local and that for us is even that we don't know, caju, caja. There's so much different uh, uh, types of fruits that are there. Um, what I've been surprised and have been talking about there also was uh, you have so much beautiful local wood. And my tap handles in purpose are all Brazilian uh, woods, different woods. Sometimes I turn it off, uh, the tap handle, and I let customers smell it because it's so aromatic. And those brewers in Brazil are like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, we have that. Within Purpose, you know, your logo and design ideas and acorn, the tree iconography, you know, fits heavily in the way that you've branded the brewery. 
Uh, we're sitting here in the tap room and next to us and behind the bar are racks upon racks of wood barrels. Uh, but wood figures very prominently into you know the way that I think you you know design beers and think about beers here at the brewery. Wood also uh, is the subject of a book that you just uh, re- relatively recently co-wrote with Dick Cantwell, um, Wooden Beer. Um, talk to me a little bit about where your interest in, in aging on wood came from um, you know, and how you caught the bug around that. Bug, I wouldn't call it. Uh, I worked in uh, Rodenbach. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was kind of funny for me as a young brewing engineer that you were confronted with a brewery that was aging all their beer in in big fooders. If you look at New Belgium, those are relatively small fooders. And so I was right away the brewmaster there, um, and you never really have worked with fooders like that. And so I kind of have been, my history has been linked with wood. Um, and it wasn't like that in the Duzwengel, in the brewery I started in Belgium and initially in uh, New Belgium. But of course, shortly after I was there, we started playing around with wood and uh, our little play uh, became suddenly a bit too big because we started buying footage again. <laughs> and at that point, Kim was like, uh, what should he what the heck are you doing? Are you going to sell this? or So, but now with the, the Wood and Beer book, um, it's also been interesting um, to see. Um, you get approached by a lot of other people also that are doing interesting stuff with wood as an ingredient. And for me, it's been fascinating to see um, the varieties of things that we haven't really explored. It goes in so many directions. We just made uh, a beer with oak leaves on a sour ale. Um, we, I've been looking at uh, Brazilian, African, Chilean uh, woods with two un- local universities here. Um, there's so much flavor rich, them so much more dimension still uh, to be discovered. It's to me almost like the new hops. So in a way, we're talking about, you know, wood for much of the history of beer has been a vessel. You know, it has been, you know, the thing, you know, early on it was pitch lined so that the impact of the wood wouldn't, you know, hit the beer. Early on not. Early on it was raw. Very early on raw. Then it became pitched as they were trying to, you know, lower those flavors. And what you're now saying, though, is as you are being intrigued by, even broader flavor contributions of uh, of these various woods. Yeah, it's it's like um, it's a type of spice in a lot of ways. It's like um, what's known here is um, the the root beer, who's kind right. of um, initially a, a wood extraction, um, but and it's a flavorful wood that we happen to have here. But there's so much other plants, spices um, to be explored. Eh? Um, it's kind of monotone to think that we can work with hops. It's kind of boring. Just yeah. with hops, you mean? Yeah, there's such a variety and flavor of hops. And look at the descriptors of, of hops. Oh, it has coconut. Oh, it has a geraniol. It has roses. Well, you could use ro- roses, for instance. <laughs> to me, it's like, uh, why are we trying to uh, incorporate everything from the hop side? Hop as such is, of course, uh, an interesting uh, product for um, beer, but it's just one type of an in- ingredient that you can use. And so uh, I'm currently intensely looking at wood because it's another dimension that hasn't been touched too much, even 
by the brewers from Africa or from Brazil or from Chile, for that sake. What you just mentioned in terms of, you know, why are we trying to emulate all of these other flavors with hops and not just using those other ingredients in the beer is an interesting point. Do you think that that kind of falls back to the kind of Reinheitsgebot, uh, you know, bias in beer of being for ingredients and the brewers then trying to work within these artificially placed constraints? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I was wondering it also while I was saying it. Um, yeah, why are we talking about um, uh, certain flavors from hops if, if we have actually uh, root sources for those flavors in other ingredients? You know, and it is funny. I mean, we've talked about it and Stan Hieronymus has written about it for us in the past that, uh, um, you know, even ingredients like coriander can provide, uh, you know, uh, citronellol in a way that... Uh, you know, tastes uh, much like the kind of same hops contribution, and some of those things could be swapped out a little bit. But it goes almost a little bit further for me. Um, if you look at um, people are now, oh, biotransformation of hops. Oh, that's kind of boring. What about biotransformation from malt? Hey, um, it's a long time ago now, it's over 20 years ago that I was looking into biotransformation from malt components. And the malt components have the same um, glucoside binds with flavor components. And so your yeast will do biotransformation on your malt. Why don't you steer it in that direction? And so now it's like the new hot topic, oh, biotransformation from hops, that's kind of boring, you know, because we've been doing it with coriander already for last 700 years, I guess. So <laughs> it's funny, those, for me, it brings me to my style thing also, but we can talk about that later. Sure, sure. I, I don't want to drop this subject because I think there's some, <laughs> some other fascinating things to unpack there. Um, but before we do, whether you're a full-scale production brewery, a taproom, or a home brewer striving for the ultimate setup, October Can Seamers has the small-scale canning solution. They've proven the brewery's increased revenue through to-go sales with October Can Seamers, and everyone loves to sell more beer. You're only a few clicks away from selling more beer. Just head over to octoberdesign.com slash podcast that's october with a k and use offer code jamie that's j-a-m-i-e to save fifty dollars on any canned seamer purchase also balancing barley and hops is your expertise and for clarion lubricants food grade lubricants is theirs the team at clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer you're the expert and when it comes to supplying food grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals they're the experts clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery to speak with an expert dial 1-855-MY-CLARION that's 855-692-5274 or visit clarionlubricants.com clarion lubricants the expert that experts trust so you mentioned biotransformation uh, by yeast of malt uh, flavor components and you mentioned doing some work on that 20 years ago that little nugget is fascinating to me talk to me a little bit about uh, what you studied and some of what you learned through that process yeah, um, very early on when I did my thesis in brewing, um, one of the professors I was looking up to was uh, Professor Deadlings, and he was at that point looking at um, yeast and, and flavor formation in yeast. Yeah, and so a side project of flavor formation uh, from the ester pathway um, is, or from yeah, the hierarchical slash ester pathway, is um, that yeast is also going to split certain things eh, called glucosides. And if you look at his publications from the 19, 
late 1990s, uh, um, I kind of started wondering about that, like, hey, um, so if I combine this with malt, uh, um, I would assume that we're gonna, the yeast is going to cut some of the flavor components off. And most flavor components in nature are bound initially. And so if the yeast can release those flavor components, suddenly they will become free. And they become taste they become aroma that we can perceive them so I wrote him an email um, like kind of wondering hey should I be able to do that uh, not with brettanomyces but with other yeast and he's like finally a brewer who understands <laughs> and I was like wow yeah. and for me that link somebody I looked up to and I get an email like that so that was for me very fantastic so I've been trying to play still stole some from the wine technology um, on, on trying to enhance the release of those flavors from other um, uh, raw materials and it doesn't really matter what the raw material is glucosides are very common in nature you know um, wood has them everything has it so um, you can release flavors by an active fermentation some yeasts are of course better than if they have a combination with instead of glucosidate beta glucosidate with liase or liase i don't know how to say that in english, english but okay um, and then you can get a very powerful combination of flavor release so you need to screen your yeast, which uh, can do it. The same is true for hops, eh? what's the hot topic right now, but um, it's kind of a, um, a seasoned topic. <laughs> on, the, on the hop side, you know, it, it, it makes a little bit of sense in that, you know, what we're talking about, when we talk about biotransformation, biotransformation, we're talking about adding hops at a time when brewers used to not add you know, those kinds of hops, you know, during that active fermentation. And so that is a, you know, that is a change from the, you know, but when we start talking, when we talk about the biotransformative property of yeast, um, you know, that malt, the way that it enters the brewing process is, uh, you know, long before. And, and so, you know, as yeast is active in that kind of fermentation, there's always been malt, you know, in that. Um, to me, like, if I you look at an ingredient, um, I'm also going to look up uh, what are the flavor components that are known of that ingredient. And then, well, if it's a higher alcohol or a terpene, those can be modified. So, hey, what are you going to do with that spice or that fruit? Are you going to add it post-fermentation, in-fermentation, in the kettle? Hey, your decisions on what you're going to do with the ingredients um, depend on your knowledge about the ingredient. And so sure, if there sure. is something that you want to enhance um, in uh, flavor intensity um, and it is doable from the components that are present in that uh, ingredient, well, you can choose to do it or not. And that's... Uh, yeah. So. Are there any specific examples where you have found that either certain malts or um, malts at a certain threshold uh, interact with yeasts in significantly different ways and then ultimately produce different kinds of flavor compounds as a result of that? It's hard to see now in the current hopping rates that we're using because uh, some of the components that are coming from malt are also related or are, are kind of similar yeah. or could come from. And so the way we're hopping right now, we're over hopping. Um, to, to make that uh, accent uh, noticeable. But I think in general, it has been applied only for a couple of thousand years uh, already. Right. <laughs> so, um, and uh, analytically, we have had uh, 
done some work on that, on seeing what components are released, but it's always hard to identify from where they come. Hmm. Um, because right. on the malt side, the glucoside uh, malt, beyond Terdelings, I don't know if there's a lot of uh, publications around that. Yeah, yeah. So. Have you explored, uh, you know, especially now in this kind of smaller laboratory of purpose where you can play on a smaller scale, um, the way that biotransformative yeast works with other types of ingredients? You know, if it works on malt and it works on hops, you know, then couldn't it work on other kind of flavor active components as well? Not really, because I can't really prove it. Eh? But um, <laughs> for me, in you know that there's only three ingredients in in beer it's knowledge experience and creativity and so i rely on experience and eh? like okay so i have a fruit that i never worked with uh, cabuso okay cabuso um what have i done with other citrus um how can i where would i add it based on what i know and so it comes down to experience i do not get any confirmation because i don't have the analytical capability that i used to have in new belgium right, right. <laughs> um, but for you me, have to wing it now <laughs> no i have to wing it but uh, in the end it just comes like oh wow this tastes good <laughs> so now maybe i can do something different with it or not eh? or it's again an element and i keep on feeding that in my book eh, uh, that i've been keeping um since I've been in brewing, I try to jot down every day what I learned. Really? And so it's I just keep on adding, like, hey, this was interesting. Maybe I should try next time to do something like that. And then I forget. And then a year later, I read that, oh, I, oh well, that would be interesting. I should do that now. And so um, there's always information in there. And sometimes I forget, like, where did that come from? Why is this note in there? Because I don't keep notes on where where it came from exactly right um, but it leaves a lot of open questions that you sometimes like wow that's interesting is this just a big text file how do you or you know you know in terms of getting in the peter Burkhart mind like how do you track and then pull that back up well as a brewer um we often get in long conversations over too much beer and we sometimes forget. So I always have my notebook handy and I jot down notes. Even if I'm a little bit in the water, my notes are still mostly readable. So you have like a real written notebook where you're putting this intro. And like if you look at my notes from Brazil now, there's a bunch of notes in there from, oh, Aruera, it's probably pink peppercorn. I need to look up that up. Um, but the wood from Aruera is actually way, very interesting, um, even beyond um, pink peppercorn. So I brought a bunch of Aruera back, and um, I got, got a whole box. So, yeah, but I, so those notes are just like Aruera, okay. Um, and then question mark, maybe it's pink peppercorn. Uh, I'll look that up later. But I was in an evening conversation with a brewer. And so um, there was just an aruera tree outside of a brewery. And that's how I said, really, that's an aruera tree. I'll grab some branches. <laughs> wow, this smells really good. And so there go the branches. But so, so, so you the, smuggled some branches back through U.S. Customs. Don't say oh. that. <laughs> um, the, but that goes in my perfectly legal. Only that goes in, in my little book then, and then the next day or whenever, and that that goes in in uh, my electronic book uh, that I've been keeping. So, it, it's a funny one because sometimes it's like, oh, what was that again? I don't understand my notes here. I typed it down, and understanding the moment I typed it down, but I don't see the context anymore. So I've 
sometimes I'm better on taking my notes. <laughs> I'm trying to translate it in English right now. <laughs> Let's. Uh, we never really, you know, fully discussed some of the different flavors of uh, that some of these woods impart. Um, and obviously, you've applied yourself to the study uh, now. Obviously, in writing about it. Um, Talk to me a little bit about uh, some of the more interesting woods that you've come across uh, lately. And then I'm also really curious to uh, to hear how you uh, condition beer on these woods in order to extract the flavors, but you know, extract them in a, a pleasant way that, uh, that fits the goal that you're looking for in some of these beers. Right. So for me, I work with dry hopping. I basically use a neutral beer um, and I'm uh, adding... Uh, split chunks of wood to it and then we are sitting down and tasting here with split some chunks of wood what does that mean um chisel oh, okay in, in smaller so pretty thin pieces yeah um because the first study that we did was looking at um uh, what pieces are the most um aromatic and best to extract and so we worked with dust split wood uh, cubes and dust was kind of useless because typically there's a heat impact during the creation of dust okay and you have a lot of evaporation of the aroma and and, and also modification of the aroma and so um, I don't work with dust anymore except if I can't find anything else um, so typically I, I get pieces of wood and I split them and I add them in a beer and then three weeks later invite some local brewers some uh, local industry here that is interested in wood and um, uh, the professor from UNC and we're tasting and we just take notes I, I type them up I add a Latin name of the beer um, because that's how I add it in my book <laughs> so and just uh, the flavors notes during those flavor tasting sessions, we're deciding maybe we should toast those. Okay, Dave, can you toast those? Um, I'll put them in the next session then. Or maybe we should do something else with it. And so we're looking at um, potential for it. If it's a flavor that maybe matches a, be a beer, a different type of beer, well, we could already start splitting that off in that direction. Um, we've been looking in the last study also on the, the variation of pH on certain woods extractions. We've been looking at alcohol content, and there we went beyond um, into distilled also, who gave some very nice surprises also on uh, um, extractions that are way better in higher alcohol. And so I gave some to Noko Distillery here in town um, to play with. It's an African wood. And then I'm working with a, a Belgian brewer who, in Belgium, it's way easier to get uh, more African woods because of the uh, history, I think. And um, so I found a brewer there who has been screening a lot of woods and who keeps on screening woods. And so we're exchanging notes also. So he doesn't have much access to uh, South American wood. So we're just starting uh, keeping looking at different types of things. Comparing notes. Yeah, and it's funny. Sometimes you can find uh, those African woods here because they store, they sold for hardwood for doing whatever, fences. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just yeah. looking in the trash can, what's left over there and what wood it is and uh, uh, take it from there. And So you were just mentioning time, temperature, and uh, alcohol level as factors that kind of impact those extractions. Um, you know, in that sense, what are some of those parameters that you've tested and are there any kind of uh, generally applicable uh, things that you've learned from that? All right. 
it it basically <laughs> comes down if you go with alcohol uh, you change the polarity of the the extracting liquid uh, with beer we're on relatively low uh, close to water basically yeah but it is different than water uh, um if you do i don't do it in water because it, i think it's useless waste of time for what for my purpose um the stilt really can bring in completely other uh, components that are not dissolvable in beer sometimes uh, we had a paduk an african wood when you say distilled are you talking about distilled spirits or distilled water distilled spirits okay yeah distilled spirits uh paduk gave a very interesting flavor almost like one throw um in like a orange uh, peel mm, mm-hmm. um but we can only do it in high alcohol. We cannot do it in beer. In beer, it's a boring wood. Interesting. And so the solvent uh, is going to determine um, what you get out of it. And I'm not playing with biotransformation at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, I certainly have, have wondered about that kind of, um, you know, and I even wonder about it today if uh, uh, alcohol levels in beer impact even things like hops extraction, you know, that alcohol is a solvent and higher levels of it would theoretically, uh, you know, aid in that kind of extraction process. And I wonder if that doesn't, uh, I've also found myself drinking a lot of triple IPAs these days. And again, I'm not sure exactly why, but I think there's a, maybe there's something there to that kind of component of that. Um, in terms of temperature, you just, uh, you are running them in normal cellar temperature or do you find that, uh, any kind of heat aids in extraction? I, I for the research uh, topic, I, I do extra everything cold, and this is initial screening. Yeah. Once I start to get a beautiful uh, flavors out of it, at that point, I sometimes apply it. Uh, we apply it in a cornic egg, um, or we apply it during fermentation, depending on the type of wood that we're playing with, um, and we serve it up here. You know, I do toxicology uh, screening for toxicology, <laughs> of course. You know, I'm not sure, that stupid. Sure. <laughs> um, but you're not going to poison your customers. Yeah, you don't want to do use your customers as a test. Uh, no. Oh, three drop that. Oh, maybe that's not good. Um, but it, it's sometimes a new ingredient, so you have to look at it from uh, toxicology uh, also. Um, but so you kind of see the stages uh, initially: flavor screening, flavor is interesting. Okay, um, maybe another brewer here in town takes it, and he's gonna make a beer with it because I have only that limited capacity here. Why not give it to somebody else so that we can um, speed up what we're doing? I'm not in a hurry. I still am gonna live under the air anyway. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> are there, um, what are some of your favorite woods in general right now for uh, adding flavor components to beer? And how would you describe some of the flavors that they add? Oh, I don't have my notes open here, but it's, it's all. Oh, I can pause if you need to uh, <laughs> crack them open. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so just looking at the last screening that we did here, um, the. And going to the descriptors, uh, Aruera was a very interesting one. Uh, Cocobolo, who's actually Central America, was a very interesting With I've always hoped that the Atoba was going to be interesting, but um, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of weird, but maybe it has a goal. Um, and because if I read uh, the flavor comments, Spritzy. Spritzy, so a mouthfeel. Cedar, Liefmans Houdenband. Liefmans Houdenband has always a um, kind of an aged, but an interesting aged component. Christmas potpourri, green cardamom, spruce, cinnamon. And so I'm talking about a big tree here in Brazil. 
um, Alerse, we were screening some Alerse also, who's uh, the big, um, with the, the redwood from, it's the biggest tree in South America, oh. um, that can live for over 3,600 3, years, so it's kind of hard to harvest a lot of wood from there. Um, but uh, has a coconut, vanilla, so we're old bourbon, even from the wood itself. Huh. So um, very interesting wood also to, to play with. And those are just uh, three of the woods that uh, we, we screened more that day, but um, it, we're just exploring. Sure. And we come up with all kinds of different um, flavors. And then from that, I'm going to brought quite a bit of Arawera back now um, to play with, so to see what I can do with it. Sounds like fun. Now that kind of uh, focus on playing and experimentation has been a little central to this, you know, small brewery purpose, um, which is a kind of a departure from the larger production focus uh, of the last place that you worked in New Belgium. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you have, um, you know, kind of focused, you know, within this world of purpose, primarily on how you use, uh, you know, some of these different ingredients and think about these things, not not just in culinary terms, but uh, beer is this broader thing with, you know, this this uh, wider array of ingredients to create these flavors. If you think about a chef, uh, you're not going to ask a chef to only work with three ingredients. Nobody's going to be that stupid. Like you go to a restaurant, no, I only want to get food from three ingredients. If you look within chefs, uh, the variation and the influences that they have, the freewheeling that they can sometimes do depending on where they work. Um, but I met twice now my favorite chef that I always have been reading with, uh, Ferran Adria from El Bulli in, uh, just north of Barcelona. He started now a research lab in Barcelona. I've been in his research lab. And think about what those guys do. It, they play around. They make a fish taste like meat. They, 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 they go in different dimensions um, of solid to liquid or um, whatever. The whole transfer. What about a solid beer? What I think chefs have always been able to play um, and the customer has encouraged them. And so this is exactly what I want to do here. Yeah, I want to paint with, with whatever. I want to make a beer with whatever or however. And process is also the other uh, part of the dimension. You have ingredients, but then you can apply process uh, to it to modify the ingredients in, in a different direction. And we as American Craft have educated our customers, or here at least in Fort Collins, I would say, uh, have uh, educated our customers to be very willing to ask what's new. And Sometimes people walk in here and we list a bunch of ingredients and flavors and they're like, ooh, this kind of sounds weird. No, we try to describe what those flavors are. I'm working as a Belgian chef. Belgian chefs are not going to exaggerate. It's not going to be a chili beer. There can be chili in it, but it's not going to be hot. We can use hot as an accent to... Um, illustrate something in the beer or to enhance another flavor but not to be the standalone flavor and so for me that's how i approach beer here playing and i'm so thankful that customers here are just willing to try and 
I man the bar also, so you get direct <laughs> feedback on right, uh, right. people like, hey, what do you think? What's your favorite? What was your least favorite? Why? And then they're like, yeah, but I would have added this. And you're like, what? I never heard about that. What is that? And so <laughs> I'm again in my learning mode then. And so for me, that's, that is U.S. beer in my eyes right now. It, we are not limited anymore to um, uh, creating a style. We can just serve whatever up and people are going to try it sometimes they're going to drink it sometimes they will drink it again <laughs> so yeah you know I, and i love that idea of taking inspiration from the kind of molecular gastronomy uh you know um drive through the the culinary world right now um i'm curious if approaching it this way now you know when we look at beer in the united states and even around the world beer is more often than not a large-scale mass-produced com- consumer product that's then mass-marketed. Um, it has, for a lot of its history, or at least the last industrial history of the uh, uh, 20th century you know, and beyond, been something that has been built around kind of homogenization and uh, con- uh, similar continuity throughout. Um, when you are, and, and you could look at food in the same kind of way. If you look at packaged food, um, it is certainly not as creative or as inspired or as driven by experimentation as uh, uh, El Bulli and Adria and their kind of approach, you know, which they can do within a smaller, more intimate environment of, you know, these re- of restaurants uh, that typically have a very high price of entry because they are appealing to a certain type of consumer that values that experience, values that connection and values that artistry. It's not something that needs to have a mass audience for it. How in that sense has, you know, say this um, 20 teens move of craft breweries and explosion of small experience-based craft brewing and, and this kind of taproom-focused business um, changed and allowed this kind of expression in brewing that you're exploring right now? That's a long question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I just soapbox there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, so a bunch of things went through my mind, but um, hey, of course we are an issue. Uh, we are not the 70% and the 90% of the, the beer market. I'm just, I'm the smallest brewer in town. So I can't. How, how much beer does this brewery produce in a year? Oh, maybe 150 barrels. Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah. And so we, the the idea was completely to stay small, to to be able to experiment to a level that is unheard of, and have new beers every weekend. Um, but um, yeah, where was gonna? So I still think it, customers have changed. It's hard to go back to the gas station coffee I could get here in Fort Collins um, when I moved in here. The coffee that has been standing there all afternoon or maybe from the last day, I don't know. It tastes like it's completely gone, but you can't do that anymore. You maybe can still make a lot of shitty coffee, but okay. But on, on so many dimensions... But it's also about um, the interaction with the customer in my eyes. And so I'm not here to sling uh, a Pilsner and do you want a half a liter, a liter or a 33 cent a liter? No. I have people walking up here and they say, oh, I only drink light beer. I like light beer. Okay. Um, Light beer. What what is that? 
Is that like light in color, light in alcohol, light in gluten, light in... Uh, I don't understand what you mean with uh, light beer. What do you like to eat? Oh, do you drink wine? Oh no, you drink distilled. What do you do combine it with? Wait, I'll give you a beer. After that conversation, you, you give them a beer. And those people that walk up asking for a light beer end up buying a sour. And you're like, what the heck happened here? It's that high touch. People don't treat themselves to light beer. They treat it to flavor. But sometimes they're afraid because the overwhelming um, choice that they get, or in our case, the sometimes weird choice that they have, they don't know what to order and say they have a defense mechanism and ask for light beer. And so you completely change them in a three-minute conversation and just like, okay, I'll grab you something, I'll give you something, and here. And they're like, what is this? This is very, uh, this is really delicious. I'm like, shit, they drink, and they're going to drink a sour? And then they offer us, or they order whatever. And so people are ready for it. They cannot step back, but um, we are tendering, and in the U.S., I think more than other countries, we're tending to push IPAs in their face because, well, it's easy to ask an IPA. They kind of know it's going to be hoppy, at least, sometimes bitter nowadays, but they know what they're going to get, and we don't create variation for those people. Imagine if... Uh, Ferran Adria and El Bulli would ask you, oh, what do you want? Do you want an IPA or a, uh, a liter of a Pilsner? No. Yeah. So it, that, com- that sure. is another if, element. And if I go to dine at Adria's restaurant or if I go to you know, have Giro make me some sushi in, uh, in Tokyo, uh, I'm going to order, I'm going to ask them to make me a meal that's their expression and not uh, not what I want. Um, but I love that point that you just made about um, making assumptions about where people's palates are. I mean, we think of things like sour beer as being a harder thing or a you know more advanced thing, or maybe that's beyond people. Um, but those flavors in and of themselves are not alien to people that uh, that level of acidity and, and you know, good, well-made sour beer tends to be equivalent to what, you know, acid levels in wine, um, given where the, you know, kind of sugar content is and how those things balance, they can balance in different ways, you know, but they're, they're not necessarily like out of the norm for what people, you know, normally consume. Um, you know, people are certainly consuming fruit that has that same kind of level, level of acidity. And they're generally, you know, you crack open and eat a fresh grapefruit. I mean, that's, it's pretty tart and sometimes pretty aggressively, you know, sour, uh, per se. Uh, and you know, yet people eat these things and consume these things all the time. They're f- comfortable and familiar with these flavors. We tend to treat this as this, you know, rarefied thing. Well, you're not ready for this yet. Uh, but I find it interesting that you can by, you know, diving in and asking people about what they enjoy, find a, a different way in for them on this beer. But for me, there's another dimension also. It's about romanticizing on what uh, you're going to serve. Ferrania, Adria will romanticize what you... Go to a winery. What shit are those guys are talking about? It's, it's, it's crazy what those guys are talking about. Here, somebody's not convinced and says, wait, I have a barrel for you. And you pull the nail, you take them with you, you pull the nail, fill the glass, and here. And people are like, wow, there's beer in those barrels. Sometimes for people, they don't even realize that. And then the beer, depending on what I talked with them about, on what they like, I try to find a barrel that they're going to be like, wow, this is not sour beer. But it's also that romanticizing. It it is beer. It's very romantic. It's it's very unique. It's 
incredible, beautiful process compared to um, a process of winemaking. And wine is kind of boring. You crush the grapes, you ferment it, you know? And so um, that's that's it. That romantic experience, though, that's a, that is an interesting thing. And the wineries have certainly mastered that. And I think that uh, um, you're right in saying that that's uh, an element of taste that's not necessarily considered as often as it should be that uh, the environment and the positive feelings and connections um, are something that makes wine you know if you you buy some bottles to take away from a winery after having a gorgeous experience there every time you taste that wine again it will bring those memories back to you um, you know and if your experience was such a positive one um, it it improves the taste you know and I know that may sound hokey but I think it, it you know taste is a mental psychological process you know and uh, all of these memories feed into that to me um Beer gets too much appro- uh, approached as a pedestrian. And in my eyes, but of course I'm a brewer, beer is so much more than than any distilled. A scotch, they, they use the cheapest barrels out there and they sell it for the most expensive. Wow, that's a marketing ploy. Um, um, and wine, well, okay, you know, um, there's... If you look at the process of beer making and what we can do as a brewer to influence it, it's so much more. I still don't feel that we are mastering things in brewing as a chef, but we do have the advantage that we use a microorganism to modify our flavor. And so that is an, an immense advantage that we have. And we can go in such a different direction. A chef prepares his food and maybe did some um, something up front with the food, age it or whatever. Or, um, but they cannot do anything during the pre- food preparation because they have to get the dish out in a certain time. And we keg our beer up when we deem it great, tasty, and then we can serve it. And but yeah, I'm a brewer. I just love the brewing process way more. I think we should treat us as way more special than any winery. Opus One, that's a joke. That's a marketing ploy. Yeah. Compared to purpose. Wow. There's way more happening here, flavor-wise. It's an interesting point. <laughs> and a, and a you, bold you assertion me, there, Peter. <laughs> you got me on my, my soapbox, eh? Oh, yeah, but it's true, you know. Uh, Opus One, they use grapes. Yeah, what else do yeah. they use? No, they? Yeah. What could they use with wine? Oh, there's so much stuff I would love to use in wine. <laughs> well, you know, and as a brewer, you can use wine, or you can use grapes, and, uh, you know, that is a, a common thread now among brewers of, uh, of increasingly looking to that world of wine. Yeah, I've worked with grapes. I, I really believe that uh, grapes are relatively boring because they're um, a simple sugar um, supplier. Um, the malic, I think, is interesting for uh, the malic acid, is interesting for sour beers as such, but malic is in, in, in any fruit, so uh, still they're kind of boring. Um, the flavor release that they do with the skin contact is, is basically what biotransformation is for 
malt or hops, eh, you know, but they only have skins. We have way more stuff. Eh, I just made a beer with Jabuticaba. It's like a lychee, but it has a harder skin than uh, uh, grapes. Wow, this is way more interesting than a grape. <laughs> grape is still boring at that point. What to do? Oh, you let, let them make wine with it, you know, <laughs> then we don't have to do, do it. No, it's just another dimension, grapes. Yeah, uh, and it's yeah. only just one dimension. Uh, since we're on the subject of uh, bombastic statements that uh, are going to uh, upset a uh, good half of the the world out there, <laughs> let's talk about a little uh, talk a little bit about beer styles. I mean, I imagine anyone who's listened thus far can kind of get a take on uh, you know on your approach to style. But before we started the podcast, you mentioned you were talking with the you've been working with the. Um, you know, beer styles and history, uh, uh, you know, and doing you know, more research into how these things evolve. You have a very specific um, opinion that's uh, very loudly held, <laughs> you know, about uh, um, the imprecision of beer styles and the, the, the flexibility of them. Let's, let's talk a little bit about um, style and, and where that fits in the world of beer. It's a, it's a while ago that uh, Randy Mosier gave me a bunch of texts um, from the 1880s to the 1903 from British um, bourgeoisie brewers that um, were like, hey, we should check out Belgium. Because Belgium, hey, 1880, 1890, they make low-alcohol beer. We need to learn how to make low alcohol beer because our margin is going to be way larger than what we make now with those porters that are way too high in alcohol <laughs> and so on. And so they went to Belgium and you see in those texts that he gave me is, I think they were probably drinking scotch or something and smoking big cigars is my pick, uh, sitting in leather chairs and talking about what they saw in Belgium, how they made low, low alcohol beer. What style? Belgian style is low alcohol? If we would have created styles in 1880, Belgian styles would all be low alcohol. All. And what happens? Look at the Belgian style guidelines. High alcohol, um, overly flavored, you know, weird stuff. So you're saying if they were to write what the styles were in the 1880s, it would there would only be these low alcohol styles and, uh, and none of the beer that people now think about as stereotypically Belgian. And all the English styles would be high alcohol. And in 1903, the law changes in the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth starts taxing alcohol more. And so the, what, do those alcohol, what do those uh, brewers in England do? Well, they make... English beers, you know, what we know now as English right. beers. Low alcohol beers without foam, uh, way too warm served, uh, um, a whole bunch of flaws compared to if you look at it as a Belgian. Um, but Belgian <laughs> went the other way. They went high alcohol. And so style guidelines are really stupid because they're just a capturing of a certain point in time of what a beer was supposed to be. A porter used to be sour. Can you find that in the style guidelines? <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. it's for me it's it's nuisance. It's it's something that nails us brewers in the corners like they done with the wine industry. They started specifying grapes. How much more stupid can you be than that? Like you're gonna now there's a beautiful grape coming out that we could grow in our area, but we cannot do it in Bordeaux because we have to use those grapes. That is Plain, right out stupid. Don't do this to us brewers. You're going to kill us. You're going to kill the whole brewing industry. And, and the, the other part is that they are lagging. 
in Naipas, uh, sorry, is that how they call them here? In, in, in Brazil, they call them North English uh, IPAs. Uh, first year uh, in the GABF, um, what is it, one year or two years ago, and it's the biggest category. Wow, style guidelines are lagging. It's like universities, like... Um, it, it's lagging. If we as brewers would wait until somebody creates a style and then start brewing it, we would never advance. I think I said enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that those are all interesting and fascinating points. They're, um, they're true. Come on. Abs- no, no, I, <laughs> are you going <laughs> to? I, no, I agree with you. I think styles, you know, in the way that we define them naturally will always lag the creativity of brewers and they always should, um, you know, that I think that, uh, uh, style, you know, in most ways is more descriptive than prescriptive. It was initially intended as a way to kind of categorize because Americans have, um, I shouldn't say, I should say most Westerners have this, um, I real proclivity towards taxonomy, um, and creating hierarchy and kind of categorizing things and easy to you know understand buckets, um, because it simplifies our way to approach these things. And so, you know, we create definitions for things and, you know, and we do it, you know, culturally, we do it with race and gender and ethnicity, and we do it with, uh, you know, cars and we do it with sports. Like we do it in every single category of everything that we interact with. Um, we create very reductive definitions that never in any way truly describe the you know breadth of these things themselves. You know, but they make it they make it easier to um, kind of compartmentalize and not have to deal with that kind of big and broad complexity. Having said that, there is also there has to be some benefit to the idea, the concept of style itself, and that you know, that certain brewers have been able to use that to, um, you know, to kind of create that idea of connection. I mean, if we think about all intelligence and memory as being connections between things and understanding these patterns, and I like, you know, this thing because it's like this other thing, you know, that becomes the, the basis for how we kind of navigate and understand the world. And if we can, you know, understand that this beer is kind of like this other one that I liked, is that the worst thing? Is, you know, or uh, I don't say it's the worst thing, but um, you want an artist to have artistic freedom. You want a brewer to have artistic freedom, and so for me, it's so disturbing that we try to box it in, that we try to um, oh, that brewers are trying to brew for medals. Oh, that's boring. That's copycats. You know, we can buy a copy machine and copy that IPA. And then we have it. Wow. There, there's a business for it. Um, Budweiser and Michelob Ultra or examples of that. There's a business for it. But I think we can only advance as a humankind if we have as a, one of the motors artistic freedom. Because that is going to open up new things. And then people are going to follow. And with the Brazilian wood, Amburana now starts to become a known thing. But if nobody was playing with Ambirana here in purpose, maybe it would never have been discovered. And so I'm not going to create an Ambirana style, but the output is that maybe there's going to be one or there's going to be a Brazilian wood style guideline. I don't know. 
I don't care. It's not my business. If if the copycats of this world want to do that, they're probably going to make more uh, bigger piles of money than I do. <laughs> but they, I think I'm still going to have way more fun. <laughs> <laughs> but even somebody like uh, Adria, to go back to that, um, you know, gets now lumped in and categorized, as, you know, in that school of molecular gastronomy. But that's you know. exactly what Michael Jackson did. Yeah. Um, he defines Rodenbach as a uh, Flanders red. Ask in Belgium for a Flanders red. Nobody knows what a Flanders red is. Because nobody has read Michael Jackson and he wrote in English. Yeah? And so it, it's, um, it, it, I understand. Eh? I'm sure, on my sure. soapbox. Yeah. And I am very frustrated with... Um, Somebody, if somebody here tastes one of my beers and they ask, what style is this? If it's a lager, I'm going to say, a pale lager, I'm saying, maybe it's a porter, I don't know. Do you like it? That's the only question of importance. How many people that walk in here don't like something because they have a preconception about not liking it? That happens. But uh, we are a high-touch environment uh, here, um, and if we are not overwhelmed, we take the time to talk with our customers, to walk them too. We give them a taster from different things, and we're like, hey, so you get first that yeast layer, do you recognize that yeast? And then uh, and the fruit comes in, there's a little bit of acidity from the fruit, but then it really flows out into the fruit. And so we talk to them, and they're like, oh yeah, I can see what you're saying. And you kind of eliminate that question about the style. It's like if you look at a piece of art, you're not going to ask, what style is it? Or maybe, sorry, the Michael Jackson readers are going to ask, what style is it? But it doesn't really matter. Sure, and I mean, the, the history of that artistic production, whether it's you know the Cubists or the uh, Abstract Those Expressionists <laughs> or the pop artists, you know, you know, somebody starts creating something and other artists respond to it um, you know, because... Art has that way of changing the world, and, and these things move in these kinds of schools because once someone else puts something else out into the world, sometimes you can't make the thing you used to make anymore because the world is different now. You know that you as a creator can't continue, you know, and that ha that's happened you know through the history of of painting. It's happened in the history of music. You know when uh, you know music moves in certain directions, and someone else you know creates something, and other artists listen to that. Like well that changes how I even think about music now. And so, you know, as an artistic creator and someone who does, you know, create, makes creative I mean, things, like you can't not respond to the people well, around you. A lot of innovation is, um, is influenced by um, previous acts. Eh? I, I said I'm a fan of Ferran Adria because I was reading his books on how he funnels creativity he, about the method, not about uh, what he did or his food. Eh? So he influenced me on how to funnel creativity. Yeah, and so everybody gets influenced by uh, our life, what we walk, right? we, the snow or whatever is happening. It, it, we're continuously influenced how we see the world. And yeah, we need boxes uh, so that we can help classifying things so that uh, it's becoming easier in our mind. Or if you work in, walk in the next brewery uh, of one of our 7,000 breweries, it's great that they describe it as an IPA because they are like, oh, that's hoppy. Okay, I don't like hops. Okay, so I should go somewhere else um, or to another type of beer. And so that helps in it. And, but it's not a question for the creator. It's a question for more from a consumer stance. 
I can see the benefit long run of more breweries carving out their own space, not competing as commodities as to, you know, who can have a higher untapped score in this one specific subcategory of a subcategory. <laughs> untapped is funny. We had a, we're open Thursday to Friday and we have a guy working in here and he takes the beer to his table and he comes back and he's like, this beer is not in untapped. I said, no, you're the first one drinking it ever. <laughs> like uh, untapped is so dated to me you how know? special does that guy feel then uh, <laughs> yeah. if he, gets to, he was very confused <laughs> he was very confused yeah and yeah. that is um, a conditioning untapped is a conditioning and to me is completely outdated because uh, new is the new thing you know yeah. my style is new if people ask eh? and so what do you make and what is it this beer oh it's new people are okay but i need to get a, a style guideline uh, uh in my descriptor and i say yeah it's new you can give it i don't worry because it's not going to be here next week and so i get 10 ratings and adapt and that is so outdated <laughs> sorry i'm a bit opinionated no no that's uh, <laughs> you know there's there's something interesting to be uh you know said for beer as such an ephemeral thing that uh you know, you're, you learn from one thing and you make the next thing. You learn from that and you make the next thing. But Untapped also stimulates kind of the drinking new, eh? because they can do a new entry. Sure, and so that sure. motivates then people to do so. Who's funny, you know, for me, if I drink a beer, I'm going to be like, wow, I really love this beer. Oh, uh, and that's not a beer for me. And that's how I classify beers, you know. It's yes, no binary. I like it. I don't like it. Oh, there's something interesting. I need to try this. Yeah. <laughs> before before we get out of here, uh, obviously the last two weeks have been uh, a big one here in Fort Collins where we are now. Uh, you know, and with your you know, former brewing home in New Belgium, where you were brewmaster for 21 years. Um, you know, given the the circumstances and the kind of importance of of that brewery to American craft beer uh, as a whole. Um, do you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, and, and even polling people and talking to craft beer fans late uh, over the last two weeks, there's a, there's some hurt, you know, there's definitely some folks that feel as if, uh, you know, they went along and they supported the brand and, uh, and that, you know, this move, given how much importance New Belgium has put in the employee ownership model, um, that this is a change that they're not, uh, necessarily thrilled with, or you know, could even be um, abjectly opposed to. Um, from your perspective, having been on the inside of that business for a long, long, long time, and having helped turn that business into what it is now, um, you know, what are some of your perspectives on, on where the the business has found itself, and uh, what this change means for it? Uh, yeah, that's a, a whole different. Uh I don't have to be on my soapbox here. <laughs> um, it's uh, been interesting. Um, I'm still intimate enough that for me it was not a surprise that something was going to yeah. happen. I was afraid um, that um, some of the big evil could step in. The big uh, evil, you mean the Miller cores or... Uh uh, Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, and that we were going to be brewed in uh, the Budweiser plants in, uh, in 
I don't know where. Uh, right down LA the road here in Fort Collins. LA or whatever. Or, um, yeah. Because um, yeah. that's a model they take the key brands and um, take it away. Uh, and Why um, was that a fear? Um, because I, this is a killer in my eyes. And look at the Legion, um, look at Ten Barrel, what they did with them. Uh, they, they, all the big brands are built, brewed now in the Budweiser plants. Wow. That would be a struggle for me. In, um, from because of the quality of the beer itself? or The authenticity, I guess, okay. would be the word that I use. Um, I was nice surprised to hear that Kieran was involved because I've had great conversations with Kieran because the type of research that they do is really unique. Sure. I would like to apply again in New Belgium <laughs> to, to benefit from uh, the, the stuff that they have done. If you look at some of their publications and, and what do they not publish then, it's fantastic what they do on a, as a research brewery. Um, it's also for what them... AB, AB and Bev and, and you know, others. Uh, the, the, the worst one that I ever had in Heineken, I said, why isn't Heineken ever presenting something uh, on, on a conference? And they're like, oh, we only present about things that are not of use for us. Like, wow, this is an industry of sharing. And then you have people like this... How are you going to advance your industry? And so I'm going a little bit off topic there. but um, So that was for me a nice surprise. I was hoping that it was going to be a minority uh, percentage. If you talk with the employees, um, of course, it's a, a, um, a mixed bag of raw emotions right now, um, as it should in a, so early in. But um, what they're going to see trickling down now as an em- from as selling shareholders, basically, um, is going to be very encouraging. So it's a spreading of the wealth, and it's not the spreading of the wealth to the two owners of, um, or the three owners to, of a lesion, or um, to, I don't know how many owners um, um, Devil's Backbone had, eh, but they ran off with a bag of money, as we saw in Ballast Point, and what did they do with it? I mean, it um, the times have changed uh, in... Um, very fast uh, packaging uh, more than one state distributing breweries suffer right now i can name quite a few uh, who are probably are going to be next like this and so uh, what are your options then uh, to um, try to survive and i think going with somebody um, that will maintain that's always too early to say <laughs> but uh, will maintain who this company is, is um, a very noble deed. There's probably more money to be had for New Belgium if they would sell to one of the bigger guys. And they didn't because they're going to maintain their doctor on site. They're going to maintain the Belgian trip. We will have to see also eh, if that uh, is really true, but those are promises that they made. So they want to preserve the culture because it's really the biggest brewery that they have in the U.S. And so they... I'm not going to bring in management here to take it over and say, hey, no, no, we'll take... They're going to have to let this company run um, pretty much independent. There's going to be oversight, of course. But For me, I'm optimistic it's uh, this type of a buyer. Yeah, yeah. Well, how does it impact you personally? For me, I, I, 
I'm uh, still hadn't get my ESOP paid out, so I'm going to get my ESOP paid out. I was also a selling shareholder because I had bought me um, myself in in uh, New Belgium. Um, uh, I before yeah, right. fifteen years ago or something, um, and so uh, when we sold to the employees, I was a selling shareholder, but never had seen the money also. Mm. So. So when the ESOP bought from those selling shareholders to become an ESOP, those selling shareholders still had not seen. We we got a note basically. Oh okay. And uh, the note was also very uh, ESOP minded in the sense, okay, um, in, uh, now that you do that, okay, how are you going to prove yourself now on on how can you run it? Yeah. <laughs> so it, the, it led to commitment also. Yeah. So yeah. I guess it was up to you then to work and increase the value of this investment, uh, you know, through that whole process. Yeah, and so our thing was, uh, for me, uh, spent a lot of fun time in designing and uh, building and starting up Asheville until we had a great crew there running it, and they're like, oh, wow, I want to work there now. <laughs> and instead, now you're uh, here brewing 150 barrels a year at a tiny little brewery that's open three days a week. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of the the quest of my life. Eh? Um, from time to time, uh, I step out of myself and I look back and I'm like uh, in New Belgium, we could take a sabbatical. I was really doing that sabbatical when I drove out west and and kind of talked with people uh, in the brewing industry and kind of saw what was happening. And, and the question was for me was like, how can I add to the beauty of American craft here now to the best extent? And it's funny that the answer was going very small yeah, because I don't impact many people anymore. But uh, I do think I still can impact the industry as a whole and so for me that was really where I wanted to go um, as a next step and eh, I'm only how old am I um, but, eh, how many other steps will I still take in my life you know life is uh, too short to not do that what what is the next step we'll see <laughs> I, I really I cannot answer that uh, um, my brain is incredible. It's always fermenting, and so uh, there's always crazy things popping up. And I pursue sometimes some of these crazy things. I sometimes don't. And let it go, you know. Let that brain go. Uh, give it the freedom, the artistic freedom. And what will it do? I don't know. We look forward to tasting uh, whatever your brain comes up with next. Um, for 25 years, GD Chillers has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Turn your fridge into the best craft beer bar around with the Tavor app. October Can Seamers has the small scale canning solution for home brewers as well as production breweries. And Clarion's food grade lubrication program helps protect your brewery. Peter Bacart, if people want to learn more about purpose and what you're up to today with your, uh, your own uh, fermentive uh, gastronomy, uh, <laughs> where do where do they find you? Oh, we're uh, based in Fort Collins on the south side of Fort Collins. We're one of the twenty six breweries here in town. Uh, just Google, you know. Nowadays, that's all you have to do. Right? I, I I ride past you on the Mason bike path on my uh, my bike commute to work every morning, and 
sometimes I can uh, smell the brew house running uh, along the way. It's always a pleasurable experience. Uh, it's a beautiful tap room here, uh, gorgeously appointed and small and uh, and very intimate and a fun experience to try these uh, one-off beers that if you're not here to try this week, they may not be here next week. Um, so for those of you craving those untapped check-ins, <laughs> get here now. You, you can get a lot of them here. <laughs> well, Peter, thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, cheers. It was fun. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.